I'd like to welcome you all back to Clinician's Brief, the podcast, the conversations behind the content. I'm your host, Dr. Alyssa Watson, and today we're talking about an ocular condition found almost exclusively in golden retrievers that can unfortunately have severe vision-threatening complications. Here to share his expertise on the disease process known as golden retriever pigmentary uveitis is Dr. Andrew Christopher Lewin, a veterinary ophthalmologist and assistant professor at Louisiana State University. Dr. Lewin wrote an article for the March 2022 edition of Clinician's Brief titled Ocular Pain and Vision Loss in a Golden Retriever. And I'm really excited that he had the time to sit down with us today to kind of explore this topic a little bit further. So thank you for joining us, Dr. Lewin. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. Thank you very much for having me, Alyssa. (laughs) Before we jump in, could you tell the audience a little bit about your background, how you got to Louisiana State? Yeah, absolutely. So um, in case you can't tell from my accent, I'm not from Louisiana. I'm not a Louisiana native. I um, was actually grew up in Scotland and I went to Edinburgh University where I graduated in 2010. I did a small animal rotating internship in England and I I worked in private practice, uh, animal shelters and low cost practices. And uh, I did a ophthalmology residency at University of Wisconsin-Madison, which I completed in 2018. And I um, became a boarded ophthalmologist in the same year. And since then I have worked at Louisiana State University as an assistant professor. Thank you so much for that. So Dr. Lewin, your article, like many clinicians brief articles, is structured as a case-based investigation. So that means we kind of start out with a clinical presentation and progress through the different diagnostic findings and recommendations and treatment. We're kind of gonna use that as as a guide to walk through our discussion today, but keep it pretty general. So could you give us some examples of common clinical signs that dogs with golden retriever pigmentary uveitis may present with? Yeah, absolutely. Um, It it can be a kind of tricky condition to diagnose. The one clinical sign which is pretty consistent amongst dogs or golden retrievers with pigmentary uveitis is uh, radial pigment deposition on the anterior lens capsule. They will always have that clinical sign. The other clinical signs are um, Could I stop you right there? So with the radial pigmentation, is that just readily apparent? Like when they walk in, you can see that right away or or how do you identify that pigment? Yeah, it's often not readily apparent. It's uh, the kind of thing that you would only diagnose if you were looking with a magnified view of the eye up close. And uh, lots of owners of golden retrievers, even though they might be aware of this condition, they may not have noticed the pigment deposition on the anterior lens capsule because it would be very subtle. Thank you. There are a few tricks to figuring out if it has that though, which I can talk about later on. Sure, absolutely. There are some other clinical signs that they'll often have. A a lot of them are uh, nonspecific clinical signs for anterior uveitis, like uh, aqueous flare, fibrin in the anterior chamber. They can have corneal edema. They can have cataract. Uh, iris hyperpigmentation. They can also have cysts in the anterior chamber or um, in the posterior chamber adherent to the ciliary body. They can have a low pressure, just like any animal with flare can have. And then of course, they can eventually have secondary glaucoma as well. So I was wondering, is there any age or gender predilection when we're talking about this condition? Yeah, it's it's an interesting condition because it's um, 
assumed to be hereditary and inherited, yet it doesn't really manifest until they're adult animals. So the, I think they, they found out that the mean age was around about eight and a half years old for these dogs to get it. Although the range can be anywhere between about five and 15 years old. And there doesn't seem to be any kind of sex predilection at all. So as you said, it sounds like this can be kind of difficult to diagnose. Um, you mentioned there's multiple different, you know, presenting clinical signs. I assume, you know, starting with our minimum ophthalmic database, which we're all taught in school, is the place to start. So what tests as just a general practitioner should I be performing right off the bat? Yeah, absolutely. I, I would approach diagnosing these cases exactly how I would start every single eye exam. So um, observing from a distance, asking them a good history, and then doing a minimum database, which would include a Shermer, pressure, fluorescein, stain. And then having a good magnified examination of the anterior segment of the eye and then trying if you can to look at the back of the eye one little trick that you may use some people may do this already is to get an otoscope body without the small plastic cone that's on there turning it on and then looking through it as if you were looking down an ear up close to the eye and it has a little magnifying glass in it which will uh, give you a much better view of what's going on inside the eye than just using the naked eye it feels weird using an otoscope next to the eye, but it's it's a great trick which we teach our students. That's a wonderful trick. I had never heard that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's something something that we do. And another trick would be uh, don't be afraid to give them chemical madriasis and dilate the pupil if it's safe to do that. And that's something which in general practice, when I was a general practitioner, I, I kind of rarely did. And I, I didn't see people do that too often around me in practice. And just by using tropicamide, uh, you can put a dropper there in the eye, wait about 15 minutes, and you'll be able to see the entire anterior surface of the lens rather than just a small portion, which is visible through the pupil. And if you do that, the only thing you have to be careful of is that you've checked the pressure before you do that, because um, obviously it's contraindicated when there's high pressure in the eye. That was going to be my next question because you said when it's safe. So <laughs> I wanted to know when it wasn't safe to do that. And I admit that dilating the eyes is something that I don't do very often. Probably should do a little bit more as well as tonometry because I find that out of, you know, those tests, that's kind of one of the most difficult ones. At least I feel to get, you know, accurate, repeatable results. I also saw a, a study recently, which I thought was really interesting about always checking the same eye first, like getting in the habit of checking the same eye first, because you can see slight differences between the eyes that they think could be related to stress. Have you heard this? Is this something you recommend? Uh, yeah, I guess uh, I think you're probably referring to the, it's the Ron Ofri paper from mm -hmm. 2021. A, a very interesting paper, very well done. And um, Dr. Ofri's, um he's a very accomplished ophthalmologist uh, who's, who's done very interesting studies like this before. And uh, it is known that when you're checking these pressures, there, there can be subtle effects on pressure by determined by which eye you do first, what is your dominant hand that you're using. So uh, left versus right eye can be altered by which hand you're using. Um, a lot of times when you take the first pressure, the animal might be a little bit more resistant to it. So um, that can affect the reading as well. And 
the, the results of that study are very interesting because uh, Dr. Ofri found that the order that you check the eyes in does influence the pressure that you obtain, but it, it's such a small magnitude around about one millimeter of mercury that I think even in the conclusions of the abstract, they say that it's uh, probably not clinically significant. So it's something we probably don't have to worry about in practice. Yeah. I just found it really interesting because I, I'm kind of a systematic person. And so I'm like, oh, this is another thing I can just say, okay, always do the right one first and then do the left one <laughs> or, or vice versa. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's uh, something in, in research studies that is an element that should be randomized when you're checking pressures. Yeah. Which order first. So beyond those tests that I can do, you know, in the clinic, my regular tests, are there additional diagnostics that can help aid in the diagnosis of, of golden retriever pigmentary uveitis? Yeah, so um, this diagnosis is almost exclusively confined to the eye. So uh, it does rely very heavily on ocular examination to make the diagnosis. And like I said before, using the otoscope without the cone attached is a great way of getting a magnified view. And I do strongly recommend dilating the pupil if you do suspect it. One little trick that can be helpful if you do have a dilated pupil is to try doing indirect illumination of the lens. So instead of being very close to the eye and shining a light in there and looking at the anterior lens capsule, you take a step backwards and shine the light into the eye and the light will be reflected off of the tapetum. And if there are little flecks of something on the anterior lens capsule, those will be illuminated as gray or dark areas on there and then kind of clue your brain into where they are. And then you can look up close uh, once you know which region they're gonna be in. That's a great tip, thank you. Is it possible with this disease process for the two eyes to be different, to have discordant findings? It, it is possible, absolutely. Um, I think in the case uh, that we described, uh, there, there were different findings in each eye. So one eye presents with glaucoma and the other one just presents with markers for golden retriever pigmentary uveitis. And apart from that, the disease is uh, usually bilateral, but it's not always bilateral. So there have been some estimates of what percentages that is, but in my experience, they tend to almost always be bilateral, but there is a small, maybe 10, 20% chance it could just be one eye. That was perfect. That was going to be my next question. So you beat me to it. <laughs> are there really any other disease processes that kind of mimic this or we should consider as differential diagnoses if we see an animal with some of these presenting clinical signs? Yeah, absolutely. So this is a, an interesting condition, which is probably caused by pigmentary dispersion within the eye. And then presumably they get the secondary inflammation and glaucoma secondary to the pigment dispersion. But when you look at them, they can just look like any other uveitis or glaucoma. So any other cause of uveitis could cause very similar clinical signs. And pretty much it could be also primary glaucoma, another cause of secondary glaucoma. So they really need a pretty thorough ocular exam and in some cases, some systemic disease testing as well. And then... As for the breed, I mean, we're call, it's called golden retriever pigmentary uveitis, and we've been talking about, you know, goldens. Is, is this disease truly just in goldens, or will we ever see it, you know, in other breeds? Should it be something that we're considering if we have, you know, another breed come in with some of these signs? Yeah, golden retriever pigmentary uveitis is just a golden retriever disease. 
Uh, interestingly, it seems to mostly be golden retrievers in the United States and Canada rather than other geographic locations. Um, seems to be pretty uncommon in Europe, like the UK. I think they occasionally get cases over there, but not very often. And in terms of breed, there are some other case reports and case series of other breeds that have similar findings, but, but they are different in some kind of subtle ways. So for example, I think in 1998, there was a report of uh, Great Danes with glaucoma related to cysts inside the eye. And then in more recently in 2013, they had a report of American Bulldogs, which had cysts and they had glaucoma as well. But importantly, these animals don't seem to really have the pigment dispersion that golden retrievers have. Uh, they don't have the linear radial deposition of pigment on the anterior lens capsule. And they, they also don't have quite a severe inflammation inside the eyes that golden retrievers have. And that kind of brings us on to our next topic. And you talk about this in the article and you mentioned it earlier. There seems to be kind of this interesting relationship between this condition and uveal cysts. So could you, uh, we've talked a little bit about it already, but just kind of more broadly, how do uveal cysts factor in when we're talking about golden retriever pigmentary uveitis? Yeah, the uveal cysts in golden retrievers are a risk factor for pigmentary uveitis. They don't need to be present to make a diagnosis of golden retriever pigmentary uveitis, although a lot of golden retrievers with this condition will have cysts. And um, interestingly, they, they've quantified the amount of dogs that have golden retriever pigmentary uveitis with visible cysts on examination performed by an ophthalmologist. And I think it's, it's around, you know, I can't remember the exact number, but it's around about 50% or so. And then they did ultrasound biomicroscopy, so UBM of these eyes, and they found that almost every single one of these eyes did have cysts, but they were hidden away behind the iris. So these dogs probably almost always do have cysts, but they're not always visible. We might not always see them. Yeah. yeah. So sounds like I need to be a little bit more cognizant of when golden retrievers have cysts. Um, what about any other breeds? Like I have a dog named Bordeaux and she has a uveal cyst and she has been checked out by our local ophthalmologist who's a wonderful doctor. But I, you know, normally I don't worry too much about uveal cysts. And, and I think that's the correct way to think about it in general. So golden retrievers are kind of unusual in that these cysts seem to be related with such a severe disease. Uh, there are other breeds that are quite, they quite commonly get uveal cysts like Labradors, Boston Terriers. Boston Terriers can get a lot of uveal cysts and they don't tend to get the pigmentary dispersion, inflammation and glaucoma that characterizes it in golden. So we tend to see those cysts as more of just an incidental finding. And I would be remiss not to mention for the rest of our audience that you did author another article that was specifically on uveal cysts, and that was back in 2019 and can be found in Clinician's Brief. So that's another one for everybody to check out. Are you on track to hit your CE goals? Clinician's Brief has more than 60 hours of practical, race-approved CE, perfect for catching you up, 
and keeping you up on requirements. Whether you prefer to read, watch, or listen, Clinician's Brief CE is on demand and always affordable. Start earning CE today at cliniciansbrief.com CE. So let's move on to management and treatment of this disease. So what are the cornerstones of medical management for golden retriever pigmentary uveitis? That's a great question. And I, I think at the moment, we, we don't have a great answer for that. So this disease is primarily assumed to be a pigmentary dispersion syndrome. So there's the pigment is going around and everywhere inside the eye and causing the problem. And we don't have a medication or therapy that directly addresses that. So we're kind of stuck with what we have, and that is using anti-inflammatories to try and stop the secondary effects of the pigment being in places it shouldn't be. So the most straightforward way of dealing with it is using topical anti-inflammatories, so either corticosteroids or uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. Things like uh, in the United States, we have uh, prednisolone acetate eye drops, neopolydex eye drops, and then NSAIDs like diclofenac and catorolac. To some extent that the choice uh, really depends on the severity of the inflammation that's inside the eye. And I would tend to go for uh, corticosteroid when I can see frank aqueous flare inside the eye. And then I would choose a, an NSAID if uh, either we've treated flare and it's improved or there's just some redness of the conjunctiva and maybe the suggestion that there's mild intraocular inflammation. So you said we're basically treating the secondary signs. I would assume then that we're not going to see changes in the pigment with therapy. So how are we monitoring? Can you talk a little bit more about how we're monitoring the response to therapy and when we should be considering more aggressive treatments like systemic anti-inflammatories? Absolutely. Um, yeah, the, the response to therapy it is very difficult to assess in these animals. So because we're using anti-inflammatories, if there were pre-existing signs of inflammation, like aqueous flare, like conjunctival hyperemia, we would expect those to improve. But the, the pigment deposition or posterior synechia or anything like that, th those will remain regardless of treatment. And a lot of these dogs will progress despite treatment. So it's, it's not like you're doing the wrong thing if they, if they do progress. The systemic treatments, uh, such as using a systemic corticosteroid or an NSAID, usually I would reserve that for animals where either the topical therapy has not been sufficient, and I would, would try that usually topical therapy first, or where topical therapy is just not possible for some reason, uh, where, where people would struggle to administer eye drops, for example. Yeah, sometimes our patients aren't always cooperative, even when it's the best thing for them. <laughs> oh, yes, we have those too. <laughs> so, you know, in some cases, this is really severe and can lead to glaucoma, pain, vision loss. When do we need to really, you know, start thinking about enucleation or, you know, very uh, much more invasive therapies? Yeah, so uh, enucleation is really, it should be considered for eyes that are permanently blind, painful, 
that would you know benefit the animal by removing them so they're no longer a source of chronic pain a blind eye that's normotensive, for example, that, that may not necessarily have to be removed, but if the pressure is elevated, uh, some of these, these eyes can be very, very high pressure. Uh, we assume that that's painful and those, those should be removed. And then after nucleation, we can do histopathology to confirm the diagnosis you mentioned. Is that always necessary? What is the pathologist looking for to confirm this diagnosis? Yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting disease histologically. They, they, they have a whole bunch of findings that they look for in these eyes. It's not, not just one, but again, it, the first thing they'll usually look for are these cysts inside the eye, and they have these thin walls and this, um, this material inside that's presumed to be hyaluronic acid inside them. They also have uh, pigment inside the trabecular meshwork because there's pigment dispersion within the eye. They have, they have cysts all over the place. They can be on the anterior face of the vitreous, um, on the lens capsule. They can have posterior synechia, so that's adhesion of the iris to the anterior face of the lens. They can also have um, preorotal fibrovascular membranes, which form in response to chronic inflammation and then peripheral anterior synechia there. They can have uh, lymphoplasmocytic uveitis that goes along with it, which is a nonspecific uveitis, but a lot of times that's very, very mild. And some of the initial reports of this condition, they histologically, they, they actually remarked on how little inflammation these eyes have. So it has been suggested in the past that this term golden retriever pigmentary uveitis may be somewhat of a misnomer because there's not that much inflammatory component. However, we, we seem to have settled collectively on the term golden retriever pigmentary uveitis. That's really interesting. Does the histopathology of an enucleated eye help guide you at all? If the other eye, you know, if we're able to maintain vision or medically manage the other eye, does it seem that, you know, it, it is usually bilateral, that it's going to follow the same path? Does, does that make any sense? <laughs> yeah, it, it, uh, yeah, it's a great question and one that we get asked all the time. Um, by owners, by uh, students, by referring mm -hmm. veterinarians about whether we should submit the eye for histopathology. Mm -hmm. And my answer is pretty simple. It, it, the answer is always yes. Yeah. So sending it, I, I, I know it's an additional expense. Uh, we, we build it into our estimates here automatically. And that is because sometimes the benefit is not always immediately obvious, but like you said, if, uh, if it's not golden retriever pigmentary uveitis, they might find a, a pathogen inside the eye that's caused it, which would have implications for the other eye. Maybe they find neoplasia that, you know, with a misdiagnosis, for example. Um, it's, it's always worthwhile sending the eye out for histopathology. And so what is the overall prognosis for dogs, you know, when they are diagnosed with golden retriever pigmentary uveitis? Uh, yeah, the, the prognosis is it's not very good. So it's... Um, Around about 25 to maybe 50% of dogs uh, will go on to have vision loss and glaucoma once they've been diagnosed with golden retriever pigmentary uveitis. So um, it's pretty high. Um, the glaucoma, I, I didn't say earlier, but you, you can medically try and treat the glaucoma, of course, using ocular antihypertensives. But however, you know, they around about a quarter to half, they, they will go on to have vision loss. And since we do believe that this is an inherited condition, 
is, is there are there any screening programs? Are there genetic tests? Is that in the works to help you know advise breeders of these dogs so that maybe we can get at the condition that way instead of waiting until it's apparent and trying to treat? The uh, Golden Retriever Associations uh, in America, the Breeders Associations, they are very interested in decreasing the incidence of this disease in the United States and Canada. And it's a real problem for breeders and owners of these dogs, um, a, a serious problem. It's very prevalent as well. So there's a lot of interest both with those groups and also with the American College of Veterinary Ophthalmologists and other groups that are affiliated with them in screening dogs through examination and uh, making recommendations on breeding if the, any of these clinical signs are detected. Uh, in terms of a genetic test, that there is not one, to my knowledge, available at the moment uh, because the underlying cause of this condition is uh, still yet to be fully elucidated. I can imagine it's hard, though, if, you know, we don't. I'm sure a lot of these dogs, their kind of breeding career is a little earlier if the signs don't typically present until, you know, eight or nine years of age. That, that's that's, that's exactly <laughs> that's exactly the problem. Yep. Yeah. And um, there are similar eye conditions in other breeds like pigmentary glaucoma in Cairn Terriers, which is not cyst related. It's a different condition but they don't get that until they're older as well. So it's very hard to avoid breeding these animals. So once we've made a diagnosis, um, how often should we be re-examining these patients? How often should they be coming into the clinic to see us if their disease is stable and their eyes appear comfortable? It's a great question. It, it does depend to some extent to what you find. Uh, if you said, as you say, they're stable, so I would count that as Maybe you've seen some pigment on the anterior lens capsule, but they don't have any active flare or inflammation. Maybe you've already controlled that by using some anti-inflammatories, or maybe they have high pressure and you've managed to control the pressure um, using antihypertensives. If they do have glaucoma, you're going to want to see them a little bit more frequently. But if you're just using a long-term anti-inflammatory, I think anywhere between maybe six to 12 months would be a reasonable suggestion. And is there anything else that you would like the audience to take away from the discussion today? Uh, sure, yeah. It, like I've said a couple of times in this conversation, it, it's a kind of a tricky diagnosis to make. And um, it's much easier when you have specialty equipment like a slit lamp. So um, it's something which pretty much all veterinary ophthalmologists are going to be familiar with this condition. I, I think their, their wheels in their mind will start working the second they see the, the breed of the patient. So we really do spend quite a lot of effort looking for these uh, lesions and we're happy to help. Uh, so referring to an ophthalmologist early is always a great idea. And this was a just a wonderful discussion for me because I was not really familiar with this condition at all before your article. And it's it's always nice for me too to have that in the back of my brain and and maybe know that referral a little bit earlier is is probably the safer thing to do. So I appreciate that too. Oh, my pleasure. So that brings us to the end of our our podcast episode. However, before we let you go, there is a little game that we like to play at the end of the episodes. <laughs> I don't know if you've listened to any before and you're expecting your your rapid fire questions. <laughs> no, no, but I'm excited now. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's really easy. It's just a kind of would you rather. There's no right or wrong answers. It's just for fun. Great. Far away. All right. 
Would you rather have an entire month of nothing but surgical cases or an entire month of medical cases, but not get to do any surgery? Surgical cases. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Would you rather be stuck in the hospital with a really loud hyperthyroid cat or a howling husky? The cat. The cat? <laughs> yeah. Just based on the decibel level, I think. <laughs> Is the correct abbreviation for subcutaneous SC or SQ? Man, that's one for the ages. Uh, I, I think I'm an SQ guy. I'm an SQ girl too, but I, <laughs> I was really interested because, you know, you are from other parts of, of the, the globe. And so I wondered if that was something different. <laughs> yeah, no, it's weird how many times that actually comes up. But yeah, that, that, is, a, that is always a question. Do you treat your own pets or do you have a trusted colleague do it? Uh, I actually, I do my own pets. Um, I, although I do work at a vet school, so I'm kind of spoiled because I have access to so many experts who, you know, like I can just ask a quick question to say, hey, how, how do I treat lymphoma and my own cat? You know, <laughs> they yeah, can give you yeah. a question, the answer immediately. That's okay. All right. And last question. Would you rather have to administer eye drops six times a day to like a giant Tyrannosaurus Rex size bulldog or just 10 regular size bulldogs? <laughs> uh yeah I, I i think 10 i think they're cute in groups okay. <laughs> i don't know how you'd get up there and like would you have to give the whole bottle like it seems yeah, logistically yeah, difficult like giant, yeah like trash trash can style <laughs> well that was it you did great oh thank you very much i enjoyed it thanks again to today's guest for joining us and thank you for listening if you enjoyed today's episode you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review us. You can also listen to our podcast on our website at cliniciansbrief.com podcasts. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at cliniciansbrief and on Instagram at clinicians.brief or drop us a line at podcast at briefmedia.com. Clinicians Brief the podcast is a brief media production Produced by Alexis Ussery, sound by Randall Stupka, and hosted by me, Dr. Alyssa Watson. <laughs>